Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Tuesday, January 18th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, choosing to remain in the dark on the power of deliberate ignorance, plus AI that can make academic articles more comprehensible, and one site in particular that took off last week, and a new browser-based history game that I at least can't stop playing. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. As you are listening to this podcast, I can assume you are probably a curious person. Maybe the kind of person who has an insatiable urge to learn anything and everything. That's the kind of person I am, too. I'm so curious about so many different things that, in fact, on the rare occasion that I'm uninterested in something, I actually lean into that because I know I need to rein myself in. You know, if one day I become interested in it, so be it. But for now, I've got such a tendency to want to learn and know and try so many different things that it's almost refreshing when I encounter something I'm not interested in. There are also the things that I am curious about, but I try to exercise restraint and not uncover more information about because I'm aware of various ways I might regret acquiring that knowledge. You know, maybe spoilers for a book or movie I'm really excited about. Maybe it's something I know will drag me down a rabbit hole that I do not have time for. Maybe it's potentially horrible things people are saying about me or my work online. Tempting as all those things may be to discover in the moment, I know how much I might regret knowing them afterwards. This intentional act of not learning something is called deliberate ignorance, and is the subject of an academic book published last spring by co-editors psychologist Ralph Hertwig and law and economics professor Christoph Engel, both of the Max Planck Institutes. Shayla Love recently wrote an excellent piece for Vice about the book and the concept. Love points out a number of apt examples of things that people commonly don't want to know. James Watson, a co-discoverer of the structure of DNA, for example, sequenced his own genome, but did not want to reveal the specific gene associated with late-onset Alzheimer's. He just didn't want to know. A 2017 study of people from Spain and Germany found that between 85 and 90% of people didn't want to know information about the time of their deaths. Jennifer Howell, a psychologist at the University of California, has conducted a number of studies in this vein. In some of her tests, she found that 80% of people, while watching a video, don't want to be told how it ends. 75% of participants didn't want to know if their partner had thought about cheating on them. Other common things people often don't want to know, what they're getting for Christmas, the scores of games that they haven't watched yet, and the sex of their unborn child. In the study from Spain and Germany, Love says that they found only 1% of participants consistently wanted to know everything. 
A big reason people don't want to know is what psychologist Gerd Gigerenzer, who conducted that study, calls regret theory. Basically, not knowing something helps you avoid negative feelings that come from the knowledge of a topic. This is particularly true in the case of people avoiding medical testing. Even when there is reason to be concerned, you know, maybe you're high risk or exhibiting some symptoms, a lot of people will choose not to get tested or not to go see a doctor, not due to cost or time commitment, but because they, consciously or not, are avoiding the negative feelings they fear will come with a diagnosis, even if putting it off means worse outcomes later on. With more and more ways for us to detect genetic diseases and the like, researchers and bioethicists have actually introduced something called the right not to know, which argues that people should be allowed to remain unaware of certain information as it pertains to themselves if they want to. But this sort of emotional regulation, the putting off of negative feelings, is not the only motivating factor for deliberate ignorance. Hertwig and Engel also point to cases when knowledge could threaten your worldview or self-view. People might avoid learning things that could threaten their belief systems. One thing I found interesting was that both Hertwig and Gigerenzer have identified the types of people who are more likely to practice deliberate ignorance. Older people, for one. Hertwig thinks it could be because they've felt the regret of knowing too much in the past and therefore more highly value that emotional regulation. But there's also people who are more risk-averse, which makes sense in as much as sometimes knowing something can be risky. Also, people who attend religious services more frequently and are more likely to buy life and legal insurance. Where it gets especially interesting to me, though, is when deliberate ignorance goes beyond yourself, when it affects other people, for good or for ill. On the good side of things, there's stuff like double-blind clinical trials, which help get the most accurate results in certain studies, or the efforts made to ensure jurors are unfamiliar with a case before sitting on the jury. There's also certain types of job interviews or auditions, Love points to the New York Philharmonic as an example, where candidates aren't seen so that gender, race, ethnicity, ability status, etc. can't subconsciously affect the decision. But on the negative side of things, sometimes our own deliberate ignorance can affect other people. Quoting again, Willful blindness helps bankers and policymakers ignore the risks in which they engage, deflect criticism, and stall effective reform, Gigerenzer wrote. A manager in a company may not want to know anything about the accounts because they're worried that there's fraud, and so they may want to have plausible deniability, cognitive scientist Stefan Lewandowski said. And studies have shown that almost 10% of people who get HIV testing do not come back for their results. In these instances, deliberate ignorance is problematic. Not the ignorance itself, but its function and effect on others. I don't want to know because I don't want to ruin my life, Laura Schmid, a postdoctoral researcher at the Institute of Science and Technology Austria who studies game theory, said. On the other hand, not knowing and continuing to choose to not know can affect other people. End quote. And like the HIV testing example, we're seeing this in stark relief right now with the pandemic. When people choose not to get tested for all the aforementioned reasons a person might not get tested for any scary or stressful medical issue, they are necessarily affecting others by potentially spreading COVID. So Hertwig suggests looking to John Stuart Mill's harm principle as a rubric, quoting Love, if your behavior harms other people, then it is at risk of being unethical. Making our ignorance 
ignorant choices wisely and ensuring they don't negatively impact others is the key to wielding deliberate ignorance safely. End quote. And indeed, deliberate ignorance is often an act of incredible self-control. For some people, more than others, and depending on the context, you know, avoiding spoilers, not reading someone's text messages if their phone is left out and open, resisting a hyperlink with some kind of warning about it being gruesome or disgusting, not doom-scrolling. Choosing not to engage with those temptations is an example of what Hertwig has coined critical ignorance, akin to critical thinking or critical reading. Quoting Love, critical ignorance is where we actively choose to not engage with certain content. Hertwig was inspired by the work of Eric Weinberg, an educational scientist at Stanford, who has studied lateral reading. This is a process that professional fact-checkers use where if they engage with suspicious-looking content online, instead of reading the website itself to check its reliability, they leave the site and read other sources about its origin to look into credibility. I feel like that's what the doom-scrolling idea was, Howell said. At some point, more information is not helping you in any way. It's not improving your decisions. It could even be paralyzing your decisions. End quote. Which reminds me of something I read recently from Mortimer Adler in his famous How to Read a Book book. He said, We do not have to know everything about something in order to understand it. Too many facts are often as much an obstacle to understanding as too few. End quote. And again, that self-discipline can occasionally be tough, especially for the chronically curious. If you're ever on the fence about whether or not you should dive in and discover something or not, Howell suggests a good old-fashioned pro and con list to help you make a deliberate decision. And here are some constraints that might appear on that list. Whether or not you may regret knowing the emotional regulation that could come from not knowing, the prioritization of resources, that is, sometimes you have to not know some things in order to have the time and energy to know more about other things. You know, ignorance gets a bad rap. We think of it as a passive thing, indicative perhaps of apathy or laziness. And this isn't a new judgment. Love and Hertwig both point to the ancient Greeks and their assertions about humans' innate curiosity and the dangers of not pursuing knowledge. Just today, Jason over on Kotki.org shared a modern spin on Plato's Allegory of the Cave, a clip from a few years back from the FX TV show Legion, narrated by John Hamm, kind of tying smartphones and social media to the shadows in the cave and warning about not opening your eyes to the real world. And no one is arguing to stay inside the cave, at least not all the time, but ignorance, when wielded thoughtfully, can be a force for good, for ourselves and sometimes for others. It's okay to not know. At FanDuel Casino, we know the only thing better than a win is a free win. That's why we made Reward Machine, the daily free-to-play game that gives you a chance to win up to $2,000 in casino bonus. We've given away over $50 million in free bonuses, and we're just getting started. Every day at 6 p.m., you get three chances to spin the Reward Machine reels. There are three ways to win. One, match any three symbols for an instant win. Two, collect symbols each day for a chance to win weekly prizes. Or three, win up to $2,000 
if you collect three trophies. FanDuel has given away over $50 million to hundreds of thousands of people through Reward Machine. So what are you waiting for? Download the FanDuel Casino app by going to FanDuel.com slash PA3 and start playing Reward Machine today. That's FanDuel.com slash PA3. No purchase necessary. 21 plus and present in PA. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable casino only site credit that expires seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash casino. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG. There's a fun site that took over academic Twitter last week, and it is called TLDR Papers. Basically, it uses AI to summarize academic papers in a way so simple, even a second grader could understand it. There are two problems. One, while the resulting summary is easy to understand, it's rarely accurate to what the research actually is. And two, after going viral, the website has been under maintenance and doesn't seem to be coming back. But the technology behind TLDR papers and the implications for similar AI usage going forward is really fascinating. So first, some examples of the TLDR papers AI in action. Michelle Ryan, director of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at the Australian National University wrote a paper about the concept of the glass cliff, the phenomenon in which women are promoted to leadership roles right when the company or organization is at the highest risk of failure. TLDR Papers summarized her work as, quote, The glass cliff is a place where a lot of women get put. It's a bad place to be. End quote. Not technically wrong, and Ryan thought it was pretty great, but admits it did leave out a lot of nuance from her paper. Jonathan Merrick's paper on China's, quote, coercive economic statecraft, end quote, was summarized by TLDR papers as, quote, a country called China is trying to use their money to make other countries do what they want, end quote. And here's one more Stanford PhD student Kate Petrova's paper titled Coherence Between Feelings and Heart Rate Links to Early Adversity and Responses to Stress, whose abstract is chock full of jargon and abbreviations, got the following summary from TLDR papers, quote, Researchers found that people who had bad things happen to them when they were little were less in touch with their feelings and their body. This made them less able to recover from stressful events. End quote. I really liked that one. It does very much sound like trying to explain it to a second grader. Now, even though the site is no longer up, I do definitely recommend scrolling through all of these great summaries on Twitter, link in the show notes. And here's a little on how it worked. Quoting The Verge, TLDR Papers itself was run on GPT-3, which is one of the best-known AI writing tools and is made by OpenAI, a combined research lab and commercial startup that works closely with Microsoft. Microsoft has used GPT-3 and its ilk to build tools like autocomplete software for coders and recently began offering businesses access to the system as part of its cloud suite. The company says GPT-3 can be used to analyze the sentiment of text, generate ideas for businesses, and, yes, condense documents like the transcripts of meetings or email exchanges. And already, tools similar to GPT-3 are being used in popular services like Google's Gmail and Docs, which offer AI-powered autocomplete features to users. But the deployment of these AI language systems is controversial. Time and time again, it's been shown that these tools encode and amplify harmful language based on their training data, which is usually just vast volumes of text scraped off the internet. They repeat racist and sexist stereotypes and slurs and may be biased in more subtle ways, too. A different set of worries stems from the inaccuracy of these systems. These tools only manipulate language on a statistical level. They have no human-equivalent understanding of what they're reading, and this can lead to some very basic mistakes. 
end quote. Those basic mistakes can sometimes be dangerous, especially as AI enters more and more of our everyday lives and homes, but more often it just makes newer applications almost functionally useless for a while. Jathan Sadowski, a senior research fellow in the Emerging Technologies Research Lab at Monash University, told The Verge, quote, maybe one day this technology will be so sophisticated that it can be this automated research assistant who is going and providing you a perfect, accurate, high-quality, annotated bibliography of academic literature while you sleep. But we are extremely far from that point right now. The real immediate usefulness from the tool is first and foremost, as a novelty and joke. But more practically, I could see it as a creativity catalyst, something that provides you this alien perspective on your work, end quote. And that alien perspective is something Ryan, of the Glass Cliff, thinks could be useful in science communication, saying, quote, I think many of us could write in a way that is more reader-friendly, and the target audience of a second grader is a good place to start. End quote. Or as Sadowski adds, the accidental wisdom of some of these AI summaries might help a researcher get some creative distance from a topic they've spent years burrowing into. It could help them see it in a different light. Still, all of those perspective or communication-shifting examples are still just fairly surface-level usages of the AI as an exercise tool, not a self-contained tool in and of itself. The Verge compares it to a deck of cards with prompts that are meant to spark creativity. That deck of cards might help an author write a paper, but it will not tell the eventual reader anything useful about the paper. TLDR papers will not be booting back up, its creators ran it as a small educational project and don't have intentions to keep it going, but there are other similar initiatives out there. SemanticScholar.org provides 20-word summaries of over 200 million scientific papers. It was developed using GPT-3-style neuro-linguistic programming techniques by researchers at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence, and while it doesn't have the gamified feel of TLDR papers, it is an actually useful mechanism for searching for articles, one that hopefully will be extended to other disciplines in the future. And I am still dreaming of that automated research assistant that Sadowski described, who basically comes up with an accurate annotated bibliography while you're asleep. I mean, sometimes that research is half the fun, but when you're in a pinch, how cool would that be? Move over, Wordle. Today, we're playing Wiki Trivia. Wiki Trivia is, as V. Buckingham described it on Twitter, just an online version of the card game Timeline. And I have spent way too much time playing it today. Like its analog predecessor, Wiki Trivia presents you with historical events, which you then have to arrange in order. You get them one at a time in the form of tiles with the event name and an image, which sometimes can accidentally reveal the date explicitly or at least give helpful hints by looking at the style of art, architecture, or photograph depicted. As you can probably guess based on the name, the events are imported straight from Wikipedia. Now, once you place the tile on the timeline, it'll either stay correctly where you placed it or move it to the correct spot if you got it wrong, and once it is on the timeline, it displays the correct year. So even if you didn't know exactly when it was before, you'll have that knowledge to help you out for the subsequent events. Now, events range from the construction of famous structures and the ending dates of art movements to the birth of historical figures and the premiere of modern TV shows. 
On a recent round, I was asked to place the start of the Beatles, the invention of the USB-C, the discovery of sunflower oil, and the start of the Kingdom of France, all in order. You get three strikes each round, depicted as hearts, and the site keeps track of your best streak. So far, I'm having trouble getting past 12. Given the timeline nature of the design, it is tough to play on mobile, a widescreen on desktop or maybe a tablet is definitely best, and the site does have a few bugs. It told me that Colt's manufacturing company, you know, the maker of famous Wild West revolvers like the Colt 45 and Colt Peacemaker, according to Wiki Trivia, got its start in the year 69. Fortunately, creator Tom Watson did start a thread on GitHub where you can post incorrect data like that, and some people there have dug through edit files on Wikipedia to show how in some cases, like definitely the Colt company being founded in the year 69, was caused by tomfoolery over on Wikipedia that just got imported into the game. And as The Verge points out, this could have a knock-on effect of making Wikipedia or Wikidata more accurate, because lots of people are flocking to this game right now, some of them will catch errors and some of them will go on to correct it. And seeing as Google often automatically pulls info from Wikipedia for their cards, The Verge's Mitchell Clark argues that the popularity of the game could lead to a quote, better nexus of knowledge, end quote. Just in case you needed to justify why you've spent 90 minutes arranging historical event tiles on your screen instead of working. Well, some great news from Funny or Die today. They are producing a new Weird Al Yankovic biopic for the Roku channel, directed by Eric Apple and starring Daniel Radcliffe as Weird Al. As my friend Elisa Weinberger accurately tweeted, quote, Daniel Radcliffe is so good at playing vaguely unhinged characters with good hearts, see all of Miracle Workers, so this is going to be amazing, end quote. And I have to agree there. Predictably, Yankovic had the best possible statement, quote, When my last movie UHF came out in 1989, I made a solemn vow to my fans that I would release a major motion picture every 33 years, like clockwork. I'm very happy to say that we're on schedule. And I am absolutely thrilled that Daniel Radcliffe will be portraying me in the film. I have no doubt whatsoever that this is the role future generations will remember him for. End quote. This will be Roku's first original biopic, and their head of original scripted programming, Colin Davis, told Variety, quote, There clearly aren't enough biopic movies about famous musicians, and we were excited to shine a light on the incredibly true, unexaggerated story of Weird Al. End quote. Production starts next month. No word yet on the release date, but I am pretty excited for this one. And that is it for me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ryan Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.